Our first talk on a crisis of identity then is the spirit of nationalism. And I think we should read a Bible text together first. Uh, most of what we'll be reviewing from Scripture will show on the screen, but it's good to open our Bibles initially. And we'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And no surprises for guessing, we're going to verse 9. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. So, the spirit of nationalism. We're not aiming to say much tonight about Donald Trump and his wall to keep the Mexicans out. In fact, uh, practically nothing at all about that, as you'll be pleased to hear. Um, but it does serve to make contemporary the whole issue of nationalism and people wanting to keep others out because they feel that they are special. It does remind us that humanity has made quite a habit throughout history of building walls of one sort or another. And it's interesting that when we take the wide sweep of the whole meta-narrative of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there are many walls that are mentioned, and not all of them are man-made. Uh, and so it's not always wrong to preserve within from outside influence. But we come to Genesis and we find that there we have the defended perimeter of the garden set eastward in Eden. And we go right to the other end of the Bible and there's that wonderful vision on the last pages of the jasper-walled city of God. And so God himself uh, builds walls and barriers to keep what is special preserved within them. So we're thinking about walls and of course I couldn't fail to mention Hadrian's Wall except of course it was built by the Romans to, to keep the rebellious Scots out and to keep them out of the Roman Empire um, but thinking about that iconic barrier if you like between Scotland and England does remind us that uh, back in 2014 wasn't it 55% of Scottish voters uh, voted against independence and breaking away from the rest of the UK. A couple of years later, in 2016, they actually voted to remain in the EU. Again, that was a vote against independence. Not from England this time, but from the EU. But they were overruled in that because, as we know, as a whole, overall, in the UK, a majority of voters voted to leave the EU on the 23rd of June 2016. And that will overrule any powers devolved to uh, regional parliaments. So there's a situation as we have it in the UK just now. So nationalism, independence, um, there are issues that are very contemporary and are on people's minds. It was in the census of 2011 that people in England particularly were asked for the first time to declare what they saw as their national identity. And it was only 60% of people living in England who declared themselves to be English as their identity. And perhaps that was because quite a few 
ethnic minorities resident now in the um, UK and in England in particular referred to themselves, identified themselves as being British rather than English. So, as we think about these ways of referring to our nationality and declaring our identity, I wonder if we can raise the question, provocatively perhaps, is there a national crisis of identity in terms of who we are as the churches of God, viewed as a holy nation, as we've seen from 1 Peter 2 and verse 9? Is there any crisis of identity? If you are asked um, by someone um, as to your religious identity, if someone's trying to pigeonhole you, I wonder how you respond. You might say, well, I'm an evangelical. And that's perfectly accurate, of course. And in some situations, that is probably the appropriate response. It doesn't need to go beyond that. Uh, sometimes we might reply and say, well, uh, uh, I'm a, a brethren type, you know. Uh, and that, of course, may be all right, again, under certain circumstances, provided the other person knows the jargon, and maybe it's building a bridge. But I wonder if we would manage in some way to communicate that exactly what Christians were and did 2,000 years ago is what we are as Christians today. What they did then determines what we do now. And perhaps we could go on to explain that that's a good way to approach all of Scripture. How to explain any verse on any topic is to go back, what did it mean then? And then that gives us a handle on what it can mean for us now. So if we're trying to identify ourselves, we say, well, whatever it meant to be a Christian 2,000 years ago, that's what I sincerely believe it means for me to be a Christian today. Not just in individual personal terms, but also in corporate terms. And then what, since we're talking about referenda um, in 2014 for Scotland and 2016 for the whole of the UK, since we're talking about referenda, what if there was a referendum to us as to whether we felt we wanted as churches of God to maintain our separate existence from others who would also sincerely claim, rightly claim, to be Christians. You know, if you put that question, I think to many of our brothers and sisters, by and large the majority of our brothers and sisters on the Asian continent and the African continent, my perception is we'd get a very strong, passionate response. Yes, we must, we do want to retain our separated existence. That's our raison d'etre. I wonder, just a challenging reflection to leave it with us, would we have so passionate and ready a response? Yes, we want to retain that separated existence also as the people of God, as the holy nation, as churches of God today in 2018. What about uh, a national spirit, a spirit of identity? I suppose as we think about what does it mean to be nationalistic? What are national values? People might say, well, it's all about history and culture. And I suppose when you think about England and what it means to be English, uh, it might be that we are asking people on the liberal left if they are prepared to be defined uh, in terms of 
kings and queens in terms of Victorian values and Anglican church, in terms of Margaret Thatcher and Downton Abbey. And some people might kick against that and say, no, that doesn't really quite place where I want to be uh, as someone who would identify as being English. Someone has said that people who live in England, people who are English, um, need to get over um, holding on, and this is a quote, I believe, uh, the cliche-ridden, battered hulk left behind by the retreating tide of imperialism. And he was saying, look, we need to redefine what it means to be English rather than hold on to a legacy from the old days of empire. And um, perhaps part of the response to that is what I think is a, a recent trend to celebrate more and more um, St. George's Day with the, the flag of St. George in England within the UK. Maybe that's a response to trying to seek a true national identity and reinvent it if necessary. But when we think about nationalism, when we think about what does it really mean, for example, to be English? Is it some of these things that we've just listed? Or would you define yourself as English in other terms? What are the core values of being English, for example? I guess when people discover um, a distinct people group, maybe they've been quite remote and untouched by um, other contacts, they might, as anthropologists, they might study their rituals, that by studying their rituals, they feel they'll get a sense of what their values are, because their values express themselves in their rituals as a people. I think that's not a bad way of looking at it. If we're thinking of ourselves as the holy nation, what are our core values? If we were looking at God's holy nation in Old Testament times, what were the core values? Well, what were the great rituals of God's Old Testament people? I think we'd turn to their sacrificial system that came from God, of course. But what did it express? As following a line of thought, so it's not an original thought to me, but just pursuing it in study, the sacrificial system for Israel had three main offerings or sacrifices. The burnt offering, and the sin offering, and the peace offering. And those rituals, if you like, expressed the values that God wanted in his people. Dedication, the whole burnt offering. An awareness of sin, a sensitivity to sin, an appreciation of holiness, the core value of the sin offering. A joyful celebration of fellowship with God, the peace offering. And so I think in these rituals, if we can view them as rituals, we do get a sense of the core values that God's looking for in his holy nation at any point in time. And it applies surely spiritually to us today in New Testament times. The Lord said that the kingdom would be taken away from Israel and given to another nation bringing forth its fruits for God. What were these fruits? These core values. Romans 14 and verse 17 speaks about the kingdom of God and says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those are the core values of a people for God, of the holy nation. 
As we just look at Bruchel's marvellous painting of the Tower of Babel, we think back to that time in history when people came together. There was a lot of cooperation. They had a cooperative spirit, but it wasn't compliant or in accord with God's will. The nations at that time in earth history had shut out God at the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 11. And the Bible records the name of the man Peleg. In his days the earth was divided. And I believe that puts him at this time. The division of the earth into linguistic groups. In the time of Peleg. And in the fifth generation after Peleg. We come to Abram. Or Abraham. The nations had shut out God and turned their back on God. So God shut out all the nations. And he began again with one man. And he said to Abram. I will make from you, Abraham, a great nation. Genesis 15 is marvelous. God invites Abraham to come outside his tent. Look up, Abraham. See the stars. So shall your descendants be. What a response by Abraham. It says he believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And that's the gospel. Because we find it in Romans 4. And quoted again in Galatians 3. It's through faith that righteousness is reckoned to us. And the gospel was preached to Abraham. In you all the earth will be blessed. And from this one man came that nation. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And through that nation the gospel is now reaching out into all the world. Abraham's grandsons. Jacob and Esau went head to head even in the womb. You remember how Abraham's son Isaac married to Rebekah, but Rebekah was infertile initially, and they prayed about it. They took it to God as we take our problems to the Lord, and she conceived. But then she was experiencing a difficult pregnancy. And she says, if it is this way, why am I like this? Lord, if this is an answer to prayer, if this is from you that I'm now pregnant with this child, why is it like this? Why have I got such a difficult pregnancy? And so she went to God in prayer with her difficult pregnancy for a diagnosis. And God gave her a prognosis. Two nations are in your womb. And from the very outset, Jacob was wrestling with his brother. But of course, it wasn't only with his brother he wrestled. Famously in Genesis 32, down at the fords of the Jabbok, Jacob had to wrestle with the God-man. Jacob seemed to struggle with his identity, didn't he? Here's a man with a, a crisis of identity. Because you remember when his father Isaac had asked him, at the point of wanting to give him the blessing, he says to him, what is your name? What does Jacob say? It's Esau, dad. I'm Esau. It wasn't his true identity. The angel of the Lord in Genesis 32 says to Jacob, what is your name? He says, ah, right. It's Jacob. I'll get it right this time. It's Jacob. That's who I am. And then the Lord says to him, well, you'll be no longer Jacob, but your name will be Israel. You've striven with God. You've been wrestling with others. You've wrestled with me, but you're wrestling to get what I want to give you anyway. You're blessed, a prince of God. 
or to be someone's prized possession. But what if that person is God? What if we're God's prized possession? What a marvellous thought that is. It should thrill us as we think of our identity in corporate terms as churches of God today. But we go back into the Old Testament because 1 Peter 2 borrows the imagery from the Old Testament. And we're told that regarding God's choice of a nation back then, God had arranged all the peoples of the earth in accordance with giving Israel, first of all, their place. Israel first. Because Israel was God's priority. God's portion. His special portion. And the rest fitted in around. Why? Not because Israel were bigger or better. In fact, the scripture tells us it exactly wasn't for those reasons. That wasn't the case. But it was because of God's sovereign love. He loved Israel from the beginning. And he put all the nations in place relative to Israel. And then when he brings them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea before Mount Sinai, thunders the Decalogue to them, the Ten Commandments. God makes this relationship with a covenant with them. If you will indeed obey my voice, as you have said you will, then you shall be my own possession. A people for God's possession. A holy nation. A holy nation. They should have had a spirit of nationalism in a true and right sense, living up to their identity as God had declared it to be. They were to be a nation that's special. And how special they were. Moses reminded them in Deuteronomy. He said to them, What people has a God so near them as you have? What people has laws so righteous as you have? What people has heard the voice of God speaking to them as you have? And what people has had a God who by trial and by signs and wonders and by war and by a mighty hand has taken them out of another nation to be a special nation for him? Israel, you are so special. You better realize that and live up to it. That's your identity in corporate terms. You're God's prized possession. He's the magnificent, transcendent author of all things. And you are his prized possession. Why would you want to be anything else or other than that? But they did. 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 5. Finds the people coming to Samuel the prophet and saying, We don't want to be special anymore. We just want to be like everybody else. Make us a king. Appoint a king for us. Because we see all the other peoples. They've got kings. We want a king. We want somebody we can see. Somebody who will be our figurehead. A monarchy. Someone who will lead us into battle. We want a king. We want to be like the other people. And Samuel was hurt by that. But God says to Samuel. Samuel they've not rejected you. They've rejected me. From being their king. God felt that. His prized possession. And they didn't appreciate it. They said we just want to be like the others. And so finally. We apply this to ourselves. Because we can extract it at least a couple of times from the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord Jesus said to disciples. To those in the kingdom. Do not be like them. Don't be like the nations of the world. 
regardless with their worldly ambitions and desires, with untransformed lives. Don't be like them. And so Israel's exalted status as a holy nation in the past certainly has lessons for us today. They wanted to be like the others. The Lord says to us, don't follow suit. Don't be like Israel. Don't say you want to be like others. Don't be like them. You're special. That's our identity from the Lord. And so when Peter, and we come back to finish where we began, when Peter writes his first letter to disciples of Christ in that first century AD, he views them as those sprinkled by blood for obedience. It's going all the way back to that moment at Mount Sinai when Israel said, we will obey. And God said, then you'll be my people, my special treasure, my holy nation. Peter also views them as coming to the living stone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was viewing them as a worshipping house in so viewing them. And then he says to them, and you're a holy nation, a people for God's own prized possession. You know, sometimes it's hard being in a church of God today, isn't it? Because we can get small. There can be troubles that affect us. Difficulties can arise. All of these things, and we're impacted and affected by them. We see people apathetic to the gospel. We don't see our numbers increasing. The going can be tough. But we come back to this, do we not? The Lord says in his word that we are his special prized possession. That's a wow. And that's something we shouldn't fail to have it grip us. Paul says to Titus, Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us. Not only to forgive our sins, praise God he did that, but more than that was involved in what happened at Calvary in the mind and will of God. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity to live transformed holy lives as individual Christians, but also that we might be purified with others together to be a people for God's own possession, zealous for good works. So my parting comment to you is this. Isn't there a correct form of nationalism? And isn't this it? Rejoicing in holy nation status before God? There should be no crisis, I hope, for us in that.